The Old Testament reading comes from Isaiah chapter 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you, who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins, we have, be we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord. Remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please, look, we are all your people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The epistle reading. If you could flip over to the um, Old Testament reading, Isaiah 64. So this is the first Sunday in Advent. We're turning the calendar on the church year. Our lives are, um, whether we realize it or not, and most of you do, our lives are run by calendars. There's all kinds of calendars that we use to kind of uh, give rhythm to our, our days. Um, if you've got school-age kids, of course, like the school year calendar is a big one. If you've got kids who play sports or who are involved in um, school activities, you know, the rhythm of that particular sport season or theater season or whatever, it, like, it provides meaning to your life. And you fall into that rhythm, and when it's gone, you, you kind of miss it. And... Um, the church here provides the same sort of thing. Our, our lives are controlled by all these other factors, you know, the, the, the fiscal year at work or uh, the school year at school. And here we go. Uh, God gives us um, uh, his word, which has uh, the meta narrative, the big story that controls all of our stories. And one of the things we can do is we can uh, use the church here to give rhythm to that and to kind of settle into the story of the Bible, which is what the church here does. We're starting here with... Um, you know, waiting, looking forward in the Old Testament to Christ coming, and uh, then we'll have the birth of Christ and his ministry and his death and resurrection, and then the life of the church. And, and that provides uh, um, uh, meaning and rhythm to our uh, time here together with Jesus and with each other. And so to, to make use of that is, it's, uh, it can be very, very helpful. But Advent, we're starting Advent. Of course, you guys know this Advent is about waiting for God to act. There's two big moments in the big story where God's people find themselves waiting for him to act. Uh, one we'll look at this morning is God's people before the first coming of the Messiah waiting for God to come or in the heavens and come down and do something, fix this, which he does in uh, his own uh, uh, birth and life and death and resurrection. And now the second aspect of Advent is where we're at now, God's people waiting for Jesus to return the second time and to put everything to right, to make all things new again. Those are two kind of big story aspects of Advent, but also in your individual life too. All of us have this sense of we need God to fix, you know, fill in the blank, X, Y, or Z in your life, things that are wrong, big stuff, small stuff. 
God, when are you, can you do this? Can you come down and fix this stuff? So all of us are looking for these little miniature advents along the way, um, not just as individuals, but as families and as a church, as communities. And so as we, as we start to look at Advent, what we're going to be thinking about is how can we be waiting for God to act? This is what Advent is about. How can we be waiting for God to act? And so this morning from Isaiah 64, I want to give us three things that we have to recognize in order to celebrate Advent from the text. Um, the potential of God, the limitations of humanity, and then the power of God's covenant faithfulness. So first of all, the potential of God. It's a weird way to talk about God as having potential, but honestly, that's the way Isaiah sees him here in Isaiah 64. He says in verse 1, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, looking into the past now, you came down and the mountains quaked at your presence. That happened. That happened in the past. You know, do it again. What's going on here is that, God, you have not acted yet. We know that you can. Please do it. That's what I mean when I say that we're talking about the potential of God. There's always this potential that God is going to do something big and massive. And we as Christians have to resist the urge, I'm talking to those of you who are Christians now, resist the urge to think, well, this is just kind of like life moves on and everything's going to be, stay the same. God does act. He does act in big ways. And, and uh, again, this is piggybacking on what we talked about the past two weeks. Jesus is going to return and make all things new. Yes, big picture. But also, in small pictures, God is waiting. He's, and we are waiting along with him for him to do big stuff in your everyday existence is whatever that is too. But, but God definitely does have potential. And the, the, first part of, the first part of Advent is to recognize that there is a God who's powerful, who's worth waiting on. There's a God who's powerful, who's worth waiting on. Now, how can we participate in this? And again, like I just, I feel bad about, this is the whole sermon series from this past summer. So I feel bad about like, uh, keep on going with this, but it's, I guess it's worthwhile. We've gotta be in the story. We've got to be in the story. You see what Isaiah does here in verse 3? He says, when you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. Probably a reference to Exodus from Egypt and God coming down at Sinai and the fireworks that happened in those two events. God, you've done it before. I know you've done it before. Do it again. But the only way that you know he's done it before and can anticipate him doing again is if you're in the story, is if you're in the story. And I've talked a lot about this. Um, it's a great quote by T.S. Eliot. I was looking at this week. He's an essay he wrote uh, called Religion and Literature. This is back in the mid-1930s. And he says this, it's just the literature that we read for amusement or, for, or, or purely for pleasure that may have the greatest and least suspected influence upon us. It, it's, it's, it's what we read, and if he was writing nowadays, you know, he would probably include Netflix series and TV shows and things like that. You, you participate in these other stories. We're reading fiction or we're reading history or we're watching a series on Hulu or we're watching your favorite TV series and you're, we're imbibing this story and we don't often think of it as creating, that's molding and crafting a worldview. We just think of it as entertainment, but it definitely is. Stories do this. Again, it's an old, old illustration I've given you. 150 years ago, 100 years ago, boys in America all read the Horatio Alger stories. They're all different, but they're all about some poor kid, no advantages, but who works hard, makes his own breaks, honest and upright living, 
and he becomes wealthy and rich and powerful or whatever. This is all the Horatio Alger stories, rags to riches stories are like this. Now, this is, this, is, this is because this is the story that Americans believed that if you worked hard, you could be upwardly mobile socially. But it was also the story that informed the motivations of all these kids to go to school, to be honest, to work hard, to make you know, innovation and diligence and upward mobility a value in their lives. You read these stories all the time, you begin to see that that's the way the world is because it's the world that's being shaped by the stories you tell yourself. There's nothing bad about that as long as you're aware of it, that the stories that we listen to and the stories that we see on TV or the stories that we read are all shaping us. My argument over the summer and my argument for right now is that's fine. Our main story should be the story of the Bible. We should be embedded, soaking in the story of the Bible so that we are able to say, there is a God who acts. I've seen him act before. I know all about him acting before. I'm anticipating that he will act again. The potential of God to believe that there's a God who can and will and wants to act. Secondly, the limitations of humanity. And what I mean by the limitations of humanity is that humanity has placed limitations. on The the scenario that we find ourselves in now where we are desperate for God to act is a scenario that's been created by human beings who've placed limitations on the activity of God. Now, that's the way, I'll qualify that in a second, but that's the way Isaiah frames it. Look down in verse five. He says, you meet him, God, you meet the person who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. So God, please act. We want you to come down. We want you to do something big. And we know that you will do that for those who are righteous and for those who remember you in your ways. So if we do what's right, God, you will act. But, big but, 5B, behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins, we've been a long time. And shall we be saved? It puts it into jeopardy whether or not God will and can come down to save them because we know that God saves people who are righteous. But we've been in our sins. We're kind of like ingrained in these things and it's not happening. And I don't know if it will ever happen. Can we be saved? That's the key question here in the middle of this, of this passage. And then he goes on to explain exactly what he means. Verse six, we've all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and all our iniquities like the wind take us away. So there's nothing righteous about us. We're all broken. We're all sinful. On top of that, seven, there's no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. We're not really especially interested in reaching out to you. We know we've got problems. We know the world is screwed up. We know that we're screwed up. And yet we're creating all these kinds of logistics and techniques and solutions to fixing ourselves. We're not really interested in calling upon you because you've hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. None of us... it's a very, very powerful text, and a lot of you will be familiar with this notion that like, there, there's nothing in us. We're all broken and sinful. We don't live up to God's standards. But what's interesting here in this text is we don't even live up to our own standards. It's a great famous line here. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Or if you grew up with the King James Version like me, all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Even the things that we do that are righteous, the things that we do that are right, are screwed up. And the image that Isaiah uses is incredibly powerful, and I hesitate to even mention it because it's the kind of thing that if I say what he actually says in Hebrew, like, it's the only thing some of you will hear for the rest of the sermon. But it's so dramatic, and it's so evocative, and it's so disgusting. Polluted garment is actually, in Hebrew, what he's referring to is 
try to be as tactful as possible. Uh, a, 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 used, a used feminine sanitary pad. This is what it, this is what it was. It, there's no English version that says that, of course, because you can't sell a Bible that says that. But that's actually what he says in Hebrews, but much less squeamish than we uh, uh, Americans are. And what he's saying is this. If we think about the things that we do that are right, here's what I'm good at, X, Y, and Z. It could be moral. It could be like intelligence stuff. It could be skill stuff. And at the end of the day, what we do that we think is good is just disgusting. Our own standards, our own things that we, our own righteousnesses can't meet even our own standards. Not just God's standard, but our own standards. And we're exposed, all of us were exposed for the hypocrites that we are. I frequently have discussions, and I've had some of these discussions with some of you guys too. One of the, when you're talking to agnostics or atheists about Christianity, one of the things that will happen is one of the places where the discussion will sometimes go is the cause of wars. And one of the things that, that my agnostic or atheist friends would like to say is religion causes wars, like religions cause so many wars. Okay, so I'll say, so which wars are you talking about? And they'll say, well, what about the Crusades? Wars fought over religion. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, you're right. That's a good one. That's a good point, I'll say. Oh, so what about like all the things that uh, Chairman Mao did or the, 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 the pogroms of Joseph Stalin, millions and millions of people killed in the name of atheism, I'll say that. And hopefully if they're playing fair, they'll say something along the lines of, oh, oh yeah, that's, that's true. So, but, but, but usually what we'll do is we'll say, you know, I'll say, well, what, what about the Crusades? He'll, he'll say, what about the Crusades to me? And I'll say, oh, yeah, well, what about Stalin? And they'll say, oh, yeah, but what about the Hundred Years' War? And they'll be shooting back and forth at each other how bad our groups are, basically, is what we're doing. And, and at one point, if you're a Christian, you've got to stop and say, this is what we're talking about. The question is not who are the good guys. We're all the bad guys. None of us are righteous. None of us lives up to our standards. I think that religion, I think that Christianity should make us more moral. The atheists believe that Christianity can't make you more moral. In fact, the new atheists would say that Christianity is actually inherently immoral. But what the Bible says is that we're all immoral. We're all hypocrites. We all think that we have the moral high ground, but none of us do. I was thinking about this week, this this week, and I was thinking about um, uh, Chris Rock opened the Academy Awards several years ago. This is before the one where he got slapped. And he was talking about racism in Hollywood. And so Hollywood postures itself, most of, most of our culture postures itself now as like spokespeople for morality, as spokespeople for, for, for equity and kindness. And Chris Rock was, was just blasting Hollywood in this and saying, none of us here can get jobs. You know, you'll, you'll let me be kind of a token black person hosting. If I had refused, you would have just asked Kevin Hart. But, but, but you, like, I can't get a job and I certainly can't get... I can't get nominated for one of these Academy Awards. And he said that he was, in, in the course of this opening, he said that he was having a conversation with Barack Obama at one point and said, look at who I work with in Hollywood. Like, none of them actually like me. They're not like cross-burning racist. They're more, he called them the sorority racist. Like, I like you, but you're not in Kappa, so sorry. He called, that's what he said. He said to Barack Obama, like, all these people are the good guys. They're on our side, and they still don't like me. You think about um, the, the Me Too movement and Harvey Weinstein. Like the, the, the main purveyors of morality in our culture now are the people who are abusing women. We're all unrighteous. None of us can live up to these standards that we've set for ourselves. 
I, I have to say this, and I've, I said this recently, but I'm going to say it again just because I'm messing with my daughter who loves the Beatles. You, you know, all you need is love, uh, John Lennon tells us. It's a very, very good sentiment. All we need is love. But he abandons his wife and kids and refuses to acknowledge, he refuses to acknowledge his son for almost a decade. George Harrison talks about love and peace, and then he's sleeping with Ringo Starr's wife. So we think all, all these standards are great, and they come from God because God programmed us to look like him. And yet, as moral as we like to think that we are, none of us can actually match up with this. And the Christian church, of course, is just as bad as anybody else. A lot of us were shattered a few years ago. Shattered might be too strong. When Ravi Zacharias, a Christian apologist, a very, very articulate man and a deep thinker about Christianity, argued for the truth of Christianity for a long time, is discovered that he was living this double life where he had uh, been sleeping with this one woman and told her, you cannot tell anybody that I've been having sex. He's, you know, he's married. You can't tell anybody that I've been having sex with you because if you do, you'll ruin my ministry and people will not come to Jesus. Like, how twisted is that? That's the kind of thing that we do to ourselves. Sin messes us up, and it turns us all around. And, you know, while, while we're talking about hypocrisy, I, just to be frank with you, like, I'm the worst. I'm the worst at this. Parenting has exposed, more than any other thing, the hypocrisy deep within my heart, my own righteousness, which is filthy garments, the ways that I preach moral values or truths or you know, responsibility or whatever, and don't live up to them myself. How many times, I had this conversation, I was talking to Harry this week, we were having a conversation about the need to be in God's word and prayer, and as I'm talking to him, I'm thinking, like, Aaron, you're such a, you need to be more in God's word and in prayer. How many times have I said to my kids, hey, you've got to be responsible, you need to keep your stuff together and organized, this is why your grades aren't good, because you're not getting stuff turned in, because you're not organized, and I'm like saying this with all my heart and I firmly believe it. And then like in the middle of that conversation, I think, Aaron, you are the least organized person in the history of the world. What are you talking about? <laughs> How many times do I say to them, you, Harry, you will not talk to your sister that way. And I think like 15 minutes earlier, I'm talking to Angela that way. All of our righteousness is filthy rags. And according to Isaiah, this is the barrier. Like God cannot be in contact with those who are not righteous. One thing, that if, if, Advent means, if Advent means anything, it means recognizing the limitations that we've put on the work of God and repenting. Okay, now, if that's the end of the sermon, this is a really, really bad sermon, but it's not the end of the sermon because we have point number three. This is where Isaiah goes. The power of God's covenant faithfulness to overwhelm this whole situation, to overwhelm the limitations we've placed on his activity by our sin. His power is much greater than that. Also, the potential that he has going to bust forth through our sinfulness, in spite of our sinfulness. So there's two things I want to say about the power of God's covenant faithfulness that are from this text. One is this. Sin is our barrier, but it's God's motivation. Sin is our barrier. It's a barrier that we put up between him, us and him, and, and, and the barrier that we put up between us and our mental health, between us and psychological well-being, between us and salvation, however you want to frame this. We, sin is the barrier but for God, it's the motivation. Our sin is the motivation. Now, look what Isaiah does in verse 8. Look what he does with this. So he recognizes, God, we know your, your potential. You're powerful enough. You could fix this. We know that we have sinned and have put up a huge barrier here. But now, O oh Lord, verse 8, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. 
We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Our sins have blocked us from you, we know, but God, you are our Father and we are your people. It says you're our Father in verse eight. He says we are your people in verse nine. Please, can that count for something? Can the relationship that you have put us into with you, can that somehow fix this? We're not, he doesn't say, hey, God, hang out. We're gonna really work on this. I'm, I'm gonna try to only say things to the kids that I've actually achieved goodness at. I promise I won't be a hypocrite anymore. I'm gonna do right. God, just you know, root for me, and then when that happens, you can come down and rend the heavens. He doesn't say that. He says, God, we're your people. We need your help. We need you to fix us. God's covenant commitment to us is stronger than the sin that we have which pushes him away. It's a different way to look at it. Here's another way to look at it. This is a great quote. Well, I'll say it this way. Let me start off this way. There's two things that this, is, this text is calling on, on us to believe. There's two things. One is that we're completely unworthy of salvation. That's one. We, 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 can't, we can't be saved. Two is that we are completely worthy of salvation because God says, you're my people and I'm your God. He gets to make the call. He's in charge. These two things. You have to, as Christians, you have to hold on to both of these. That I am both completely unworthy of God's love and completely worthy of God's love. If you hold on to the first without the second, you will live life thinking, I'm not good enough. I can't make God happy. And if you can't make God happy, you will know for a fact that you can't make yourself happy or anybody else happy. And you're going to be the kind of person, and some of you are, who struggle with, struggle with assurance, who struggle with like, how can I know that God really loves me? I'm so lousy. You are going to have to add to your faith this truth that you are worthy. The other, the other ditch is to think that I'm worthy, but forget the I'm unworthy part. Like, this is me. I'm cool. I'm here. Take me as I am. I call it like I see it. I am who I am. This kind of person also extremely obnoxious to live with and to be with the kind of person who's always right, the kind of person who is worthy and doesn't even question. For, for us to be real genuine human beings, we have to hold in our heads both that we are unworthy and worthy. Let me give you an example to talk about how this might look. This might be a good, like, hook to hang our thoughts on to think about this. When I talk to couples who are going to get married, we talk about this. How many, how many of those of you who are married, how many of you would say, I am worthy to be loved by my spouse? I'm worthy. I earned it. I, I'm not surprised at all that Angela wanted, would want to commit herself to somebody like me. Nobody who has any sort of like self-awareness would ever say that. You just know too much about yourself, right? But here's the deal. Angela told me that I was worthy. She said, I'm going to marry you. I'm committing myself to this. I know that I'm not worthy to have another human being say, I will devote the rest of my life to you. But Angela insists that I am. She insists that I am. Which one's true? Well, they're both true. My worth doesn't come from anything about me. My worth comes from outside of myself when the one who loves me with covenant faithfulness says, I'm committed to you, no questions asked. That's my worth. And that's, that's all that Isaiah is doing to God. It's a, it's a kind of a jujitsu move. 
God, I'm not worthy, but you said I was worthy. Remember in Deuteronomy 7, when you said, I'm your people and you're my God? Please let this be the case. Your worth is bound up in God's covenant commitment to you. Let's let's move from example to reality. We are unworthy. Anybody who knows anything about themselves, no, you're unworthy of even Angela loving me. I'm unworthy of even Angela, let alone the God of the universe who knows everything loving me. Well, how do I know I'm worthy then? The answer is this, is that you are worth, I've said this before, you are worth, anything is worth whatever somebody else pays for it. Right? That's, how you, that's how you know what something's worth. There, there are Pokemon cards that are worth thousands and thousands of dollars. Like, how stupid is that? It's a little piece of cardboard with a, a Japanese cartoon on it. Well, it, it is worth thousands and thousands of dollars. You know, you know why? Because there are people who will pay thousands and thousands of dollars for them. The worth of that card is dependent upon what somebody will pay for it. Your worth is not based upon what you know about yourself, else you're unworthy. Your worth is based upon the price that somebody was willing to pay for you. God himself was willing to shed his own blood for you. God himself found the most expensive thing in the entire universe, his own life, and said, that's how much I value you. That's how much I'm committed to you. I will spend that on you. You are worthy because he says you're worthy. Part of Advent is to live in this. Like, I'm unworthy, but I am worthy. I'm unworthy on my own, but I'm worthy because the smartest, most loving being in the universe calls me worthy. Last thing, and then we'll be done. So first of all, sin's our barrier, but it's God's motivation. Last of all, wait for God. Verse four, from of old, I kind of saved this verse for, for last because it's kind of the most Adventy verse. From of, from of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. I'm not gonna do this myself, Isaiah says. You will save me in your own good time and I'm gonna wait for you. It's a big theme in Isaiah, is waiting for God. Back in Isaiah 7, we'll probably get to this text over the course of the Christmas season. Isaiah 7, Ahaz is the king of Israel and uh, the king of Judah. Israel and Syria have teamed up to come down and blow Judah up. Ahaz freaks out. And he goes into the temple treasury and he gets out a bunch of money and he ships it off to the king of Assyria to bribe the king of Assyria to come south and fight against Syria and Israel together. And Isaiah goes to him and says, in Isaiah 7, stop trying to save yourself. Wait for the Lord. Stop trying to take things into your own hand. Wait for the Lord. Big theme in Isaiah. Isaiah 40. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not be weary, etc. Waiting on God, letting God act, saying, I'm not going to act. I'm not going to use my skills or my thoughts or my plans to try and fix myself. I'm going to wait for the God of the universe who calls me worthy to act. This is, big. This is what Advent's all about, okay? Now, just quick examples and then we'll be done. Some of you want to be married. You want to have romance. You want to have somebody who's committed to you. There's a chance, if you're not careful, that you will believe that sex and romance and relationship is the highest value. And somebody's gonna come along who's kind of into you. But that's not gonna be right. Because they don't believe in Jesus, because they have different values than you, whatever it might be. And the temptation is going to to be to think, I've gotta jump on this. This might be my last chance. this, this person is into me. I don't have too many people who are into me. I better leap on this opportunity. And, and, and what the Bible would say to you is wait on the Lord. 
Don't try to save yourself. Trust God. Wait on the Lord. Love Jesus more than you love romance. Romance is great. Marriage and sex are great. But let God be your God and let him organize that if it's his will. It's waiting on the Lord. Some of you have been offered a job or maybe even right now you're being offered a job that's not right for you, your gifts, your skills, or your family. Maybe it's going to involve moving to a location that's not good for your family. Maybe it's going to involve you spending way more time at this work than it's good for your family. But you're going to think, the money's too good to pass. I don't know if I can pass up this opportunity for this promotion and the increased responsibility and the heavier paycheck. Wait for God. Don't do something. Don't leave. Don't try to fix yourself. Don't try to save yourself. Wait for God to act. Some of you are involved in office politics. All of you who are involved with other people are involved in politics of some sort. And maybe something's going on at the office where somebody's not playing fair and they're maneuvering and twisting the truth and they're getting some advantages and you look at that and you think, if I just sit here and I'm quiet, this person's gonna run over all of us. They're gonna take over here and then the place is gonna be bad. Maybe I should step up and fight fire with fire a little bit. Wait for the Lord. Let God be the one who saves you. That's what Advent is about. Let God come and save you in his own good time. Appeal to his love for you and that let, let him come and save you. All right, one, one last sentence. This is kind of a bonus. The sermon's basically done. Bonus application here. Advent is about waiting for God, right? There's deep value in that because waiting for God is basically synonymous with trusting God. I will wait and let, let him act. Act means the same thing as, God, I, I can't do this. You do this. Do you think that it's a coincidence that our culture, knowing that waiting for the Lord, that somehow Advent taps into this deep relationship we have with God, do you think that it's a coincidence that our culture says, nope, December, I'm going to run you ragged. This is going to be the busiest month of the year. I don't want you thinking about nothing. I want you going, going, going. I want you to be so busy. I want you to be spending all your money in order to make people around you happy. I don't think it's a coincidence. I think that it's time for us to be a tad countercultural and say, we're not doing it. We're not doing it. And maybe if you can fight for just a little bit of this, so recommendation, just a quick recommendation. Go home, go sit in your living room, turn the Christmas tree on if you feel like it. Don't turn on any, any music or any noise. Sit there with your Bible. I'm not saying you've got to read for hours, but sit there with your Bible, read a little bit, pray to God, ask him to act, thank him for calling you worthy when you know that you're not. Thank him for the gift of his son, who is the price that makes you worthy. And just sit in silence for a while and meditate on Jesus. Let's fight back against the system. As counterculture as you can be is to go home and read your Bible and pray and be quiet for a little bit and wait. Let's wait. Let's wait for God to save us. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for being a good God, a powerful God. Thank you for overriding our sins. Thank you for not spurning us because of our sins, Father, but for using our sins as motivation to come and rescue us. Thank you, of course, for your covenant faithfulness to us and for ratifying that covenant faithfulness with the blood of your own son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.